Hey, today's podcast is brought to you by Myers Printing, which happens to be where I work as a senior vice president and coincidentally is the best sustainable printing company in the entire United States. Myers is a third generation family business on a mission to create a sustainable future for people, products, and our planet. We're proud to help the important work of the United Nations at COP28. For more information about Myers, the awesome products we manufacture, and our commitment to sustainability, click the link below in the show notes or reach out to me on LinkedIn or just through the Substack app. Join Myers in building a greener future, one package at a time. Have you registered for SpecRite's annual Spec Summit yet? This event is a great one for learning the value of digitizing and standardizing your specification data to drive cost savings, achieve sustainability goals, source better supply chain partners, and more. Space is limited. Grab your spot today. You can check the full agenda and register at the link down in the show notes that says SpecRite Summit. Okay, those were the sponsors. They're great. I love them. They help me pay the bills. Let's get to this next episode on the People of Packaging podcast. Hey, everybody. Good morning or good afternoon or good evening. I don't even really know what time it is because I am fresh off of my trip to Dubai. This is recording this literally the day after. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad you're here listening. I'm excited. I'm, I'm incredibly excited for this episode. I've been following Roger Pelkey Jr. now for for a little bit for the last, you know, probably two or three months. The most exciting thing for me, not about all of his accolades, but is he's a fellow Coloradoan, uh, just like myself. I've got my my Nuggets championship banner flying high behind me, uh, which is a wonderful thing. I found out Roger grew up in Fort Collins, Colorado, which is fantastic. Go Rams. Uh, I've heard it's the Harvard of the Rockies, but you may say otherwise uh, as a uh, a professor. I heard it's a little further south, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who knows who knows uh i i'm joined by roger pelkey jr he is the professor of environmental studies at cu boulder which is important to say because cu now has springs and cu denver are there other are there other cus now there's the anschutz uh medical center okay there we go so four campuses yeah four cu campuses and you've been at colorado, colorado i almost said colorado state there see it's just a <laughs> It's going to happen. It just flows. It's just going to flow right on out of me. Yeah. Uh, You've been at CU now for a while though, right? Yeah. I joined the faculty in 2001. So a real long while. Got it. Um, Well, I went to CSU, so I can tell you that's 28 years. uh, That's the math that I was taught. It's it's relativistic. All math is. Um, That's great. So, um, and you are, even more importantly than that, you are a high school graduate of... Poudre High School, the Mighty Impalas. The Mighty Impalas of Poudre High School. If you are not aware of Fort Collins, they have this this riveting matchup between two outstanding mascots. You have the Poudre Impalas can play the Fort Collins High School Lambkins. And uh, the the Impalas versus the Mini Lambs is just a, uh, it's it's an inspiring, <laughs> an inspiring match of, of mascots. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the, the nineteen the 1986 soccer championship was something to behold, though. Was that all I can say? Was that really? It was you play. It was. Hang on, tell me about this. It was. It was. Well, it, the first season of uh, of high school soccer in uh, northern Colorado was 1984, um, which was my junior year. So, um, 
we, you know, it was Rocky Mountain, three high schools in Fort Collins at the time, Rocky Mountain, Poudre, and Fort Collins. And uh, in my senior year, we beat them both. So nice. That's that's the highlight. Yeah, glory days. Take that, Lambkins. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. So, uh, Roger, beyond just talking about Colorado stuff, this isn't. We have serious business to take care of here. Um, but that's got to be the first time you've told that story on any podcast. Is this fair to say? Definitely. Okay. Definitely. Okay. First time I first time I mentioned it in maybe like thirty years. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, okay, so I'm out here. Uh, or I, I was, I was out in Dubai. I was telling you before we got on the interview. I'm at COP28. Never been to this before. Um, got to go out as a as a member of the media, which was super interesting and fascinating. Went to uh, the Biden administration's press conference about the Methane Reduction Act and met with all sorts of different folks while I was out there. And and in following you over the last you know couple of months, I thought, man, this would be a really fascinating conversation to have after I come back because I think that you provide a really valuable perspective, not a antagonistic perspective, certainly, but just a valuable perspective on a lot of these conversations. And I'd, I'd really love to get into it and kind of start with the like, explain it to me like I'm a fifth grader. Um, because I, I, I don't know that a lot of people who listen to this podcast really dive into climate science any further than they have to as packaging professionals. And don't worry, packaging people, we're going to talk about packaging. But I'd really like to have you set the stage a little bit of, you know, what your what your background is, what your work has been in climate science. And then even just answering the basic question, like, why are you what what is rcp like are you down with rcp do do we know you in that sense or like what what is it so like give a little bit of background and then this rcp word came up all the time in dubai and i did not have had the heart to ask to be like what is this because i didn't want to feel so stupid so i just smiled and waved <laughs> like yeah 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 interesting yeah <laughs> Yeah, so you want to start at the beginning, huh? Let's um, not 1986 the 19- uh, Pooter Impala State Championship in soccer. We don't have to go that far back. We've already been there. We'll start a little bit later. Okay. It was really, honestly, in the late 1980s that uh, climate change um, became a thing. It became a policy issue. Um, the world was grappling with ozone depletion at the time, and um, you know it was international agreement, and so you know people were moving on to the next thing, and it happened to be climate change, um, and it really exploded in 1988. Uh, when James Hansen testified for the U.S. Congress that, you know, it's here, it's real, um, we got to do something about it. Um, so things moved pretty quickly back then. 1992, there was the Framework Convention on Climate Change um, under the United Nations. Um, and when you hear, you know, the phrase COP28, it's the Conference of Parties, number 28, to the Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was negotiated in 1992. So it's the 28th meeting of the signatories to that to that international agreement, which, which was originally signed by um, by George H.W. Bush. So um, climate change has been around for a long time now. Um, my, my involvement started about that same time. Um, I wrote a PhD dissertation on how climate science could be useful to decision makers. And this, you know, this is a pretty nerdy, esoteric stuff back in the early 1990s. Um, I, I would have no guess that, you know, there'd be 100,000 people at a COP meeting in, in 107,000 people, might, might I add it. Yeah. The number keeps getting, yeah. the number is rising. 
yeah, it's incredible. It's um, and so I mean, obviously, everybody knows about climate change and that it's real and it's serious, and we should be doing something about it. Um, but the challenge is uh, actually doing something about it um, because we've had all these meetings and there's a hundred thousand plus people at a meeting, and the the you know, the, the curve on uh, greenhouse gas emissions and carbon dioxide in particular hasn't turned over yet. So, um, you know, that's that's why this is, I think, of particular interest is that um, it's one of those things that has been a persistent policy issue that's, you know, spanning many, many decades. And so so that's how we got to today um, and and why we're still talking about this after after 30 years. And it's interesting, um, you know, I've I worked at the U.S. National Center for Atmospheric Research. Um, as a as a scientist um, working on extreme weather, um, then I got recruited to the University of Colorado Boulder, and I've worked on you know many dimensions angles of the climate issue. And where I sit is you know where science and politics collide, um, which again you know it's you see it in COVID, you see it in climate, you see it in all all over the place. Um, I never thought it would be a big huge issue <laughs> like it is, but it's a you know every day is a pretty exciting day in this space it seems got it so so you're uh you're, you're a professor you have a phd you've got this incredible background i feel like i'm talking to the right one of the right people right i feel like it's it's silly to say like okay one person knows the answer to this because i'm like if that one person knows the answer then like we need to get them into the place where the people who can take care of the answer right so i i use these words pretty you know say like i, I really i really do value um various perspectives i think it's actually something that's lost Oftentimes, and whatever the discourse is from sports to politics to religion to any of it, it's like you have to gain, gaining perspective is good as best you can, right? Um, but I've, I've really, really valued, like I said, your perspective on it. Um, so we're sitting here now at, at the, the 28th gathering of, the, what did you say? I actually didn't even, I didn't even have the heart to ask what COP was when I was there. Yeah. Conference of parties. Conference of parties. Um, yeah. So I'm at the 28th gathering of the conference of parties. Um, and in every, everything, there was a little bit, finally, it seems like they were, they were talking about like methane emission for the first time that had a lot to do with the announcement that was made during COP. Um, but everything there is driven towards decarbonization. And so we're at, I'm guessing that this is the 28th year. Is this, is that fair to say, or do they have years where they had multiple or skipped them or? They have a lot of meetings. This is the 28th meeting after the framework convention came into effect, which I think was 1994. Got it. Okay. Um, and I actually described it. Somebody asked me, uh, somebody asked me like, well, what's it like there? And I said, as far as I can tell, there's a lot of people here talking about all the people who are here to talk to each other. That's kind of the best way that I can see what's happening. It seems like there's negotiations on money and financial policy because climate change is a global issue. So it makes sense that you get everybody around the globe. There's a whole bunch of crap about like, well, why are you going to Dubai? And I'm like, if you think about it, Dubai has an ex, it's called Expo City. Like it's a pretty easy place to get to for lots of the world's population. Um, you know, I didn't actually think it was a terrible decision. Um, and especially it's like, well, you're in the center of oil production. And I'm like, don't we need them to cooperate? Like, why would, why would we shy away from this thing? So, um, so anyway, so from, a from, from, a where, where you're at today, um, I would love to get a little bit of, a little bit of clarification on is we've been, we've been talking and doing all this stuff and you're saying like the curve hasn't really changed. So I'm sure there is a ton of scientific stuff and academic papers that go into this curve, but 
what what is the curve and you know it do we have hope that it still can change or are we just like better pack your bags and pray to whatever god you believe in because this thing's spinning off the axis or yeah it's a great question um I mean, the concern is that we we humans um, through our actions are changing the energy balance of the Earth system, and you know people argue over well it's going to be you know completely catastrophic or it's going to be benign or it's somewhere in between, um, but you know the, the the central fact there is that we're making a lot of uncertainties about how the future is going to evolve, and all else equal, we'd probably like not to have those uncertainties, um, and you know there's a lot of ways that humans alter the climate system. Um, and greenhouse gases, which which change the energy balance, the radiative forcing of the atmosphere, are one way. And and the big 800-pound gorilla of the greenhouse gases is carbon dioxide. And so, if you look at climate model projections to the end of the century, it's something like 80% of the change in forcing. It's not everything, but it's 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 a big deal. A big number. And right? So when you hear yeah, so when you hear decarbonization um, over and over again, it's a reflection of you know that's that's the big dog in this fight. Um, and Carbon dioxide primarily comes from almost entirely from uh, the burning of fossil fuels. So coal, natural gas, and oil. Um, it's really that simple. Um, it turns out that 80 to 85% of the energy we humans consume on planet Earth in 2023 is fossil fuels. So it's a, and you know, people have to understand the ener energy economy of the world is incredibly massive. Mm -hmm. It's just mind-bogglingly large and you know that in the context of you know depending on how you count two three four billion people who don't have nearly the access to energy services that you and i have every day so you know energy consumption is going to go up and the world wants to eliminate emissions from fossil fuels which um you know you don't have to be a climate scientist to know that well if you stop burning fossil fuels you'll you'll stop those emissions um, and, you know, there are some people who are talking about capturing carbon dioxide from the air or from power plants, um, but those technologies um, sound great, but they don't exist yet. So, um, you know, I, I'm a little cautious about, you know, saying we're going to bet on any of that. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's also good news out there. I mean, you talk about RCPs, um, the way that, that climate science talks about the future is through scenarios. And it wasn't so long ago that... I mean, honestly, the scenario that that most experts thought we were on was kind of a doomsday scenario. Um, it had this name, RCP 8.5. Um, it turns out, for a lot of reasons, we're not on that path mm. at the moment. Um, and so there's actually, you know, better news than you might expect. We're still changing the climate. It's still important. Um, but it's not like the doomsday scenarios that we're talking about. I mean, people like to still talk about those, them, you know, in the media and to press for action. Um, but the reality is, is climate change is serious. It's real. Um, it, but it's not the end of the world. Um, and so, you know, there are good signs that emissions are slowing um, and, you know, th they're not going down yet, um, but there are indications. The International Energy Agency is forecasting that by 2030, we will have hit peak coal, peak natural gas and peak oil. Um, and so that's really good news um, for those of us who think decarbonization is important. Um, but everybody has to understand, I mean, this is like, you know, I mean, literally turning around a a battleship or something, right. you know, it's not something that you kick it and it's all of a sudden facing the other direction. It's this is this is a journey of many decades, probably the better part of this century. Um, and this is why there's some frustration among climate advocates is that, you know, you're not going to see immediate action. It's, it's going to take a long time. 
does it so on the on you, you mentioned this RCP eight point five and I, I heard that mentioned uh, you know quite a few times in in the course of my time in Dubai. Is it kind of like I, I heard a comedian say um, I I would have hate to have been testing preparation A through G, uh, like eventually you get to preparation H and it's like okay that one worked right. but it would have been pretty rough the other ones. Uh, is it sort of like that where are there like are there like RCP one through nine and with various different scenarios and probabilities of outcome and are, yeah. are any one of those more accurate now than the 8.5 or what how, how does that all yeah, work? yeah yeah it's a great question yeah so i mean it, it's been a long time it's been about 20 years um the climate community settled on four scenarios okay and they said basically we need a low one for emissions um and we need a high one that was the rcp 8.5 we need a couple in the middle um, and, and anyone who's ever done planning, like, you know, you do budget planning for your household or, you know, you, tr you try to figure out, you know, the tra trajectory for your kids or, or whatever, um, you know, the future, the future is not always what it used to be and things change and then we, we accommodate. And so it's no, there's no crime or, or problem with the fact that a scenario becomes out of date, but RCP 8.5 was based on an assumption that has turned out to be wrong. And that assumption was that we are going to turn around the world to coal. Everything's going to be coal. We're going to get rid of natural gas. We're going to get rid of nuclear. We're going to get rid of oil and burn coal because it's cheapest and easiest to get. Well, it turns out that hasn't happened. No. In fact, it's the opposite. Right. There's a few places like India and China that are seeing big increases in coal, but um, most of the rest of the world is seeing it you know, fall through the floor. The U.S., I just learned this yesterday, the U.S. Um, has the least emissions from coal since 1902. Whew. Um, the United Kingdom is almost completely off of coal. So, so that assumption was wrong. And so when you update your assumptions and say, all right, our, our, our view of the world from 2005 hasn't held up. That's fine. There's a lot of areas where it hasn't held up. Yeah. So from 2023, we're tracking below another one of those scenarios, which is called RCP 4.5. And for people who you know like to, to talk in temperature change, you know, that's something like two degrees to 2.5 degrees by 2100, depending on, you know, what paper you look at or, or what projection. Um, again, it's not the Paris Agreement targets. Um, the Paris Agreement is under the Framework Convention, you know, as part of the COP. Um, and that says, you know, well below 2.0 or, or 1.5 degrees. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not five degrees either. No. Which we, we thought we were going to. So um, we're in this period where... Um, really the world, and this is probably why you heard a lot of this um, while you were in Dubai, the world is grappling with a resetting of expectations. Um, and it's, it's a challenge because, you know, the climate community has operated for so long under the assumptions of this very extreme scenario that, you know, resetting how we think around a more moderate scenario, um, you know, it, it has some challenges. So it seems to me that, like you talk about planning and forecasting, which is like, those are those are packaging industry terms. We deal with that yep. constantly, and they're never right. I mean, you right. talk about somebody trying to give you a forecast for what Walmart's going to buy from them in 2024. It's always going to be wrong. And so I think it's actually really reassuring to go, yeah, and look, it should make sense that 20 years ago, we made some assumptions. And good news is those were incorrect, and they worked out to our betterment. It's like if you were going to invest and you and you thought, well, I think that uh, interest rates are going to be at, you know, 1% on savings accounts or something like that. 
Um, this is going to be a terrible analogy anyway, but you, you kept investing and it turned out those interest right. rates were at 4%. You wouldn't be like, well, I got to keep pretending like it's at 1%. It's like, no, maybe do more investing because <laughs> you're doing a good yeah, job. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what do you suspect? And this is obviously going to be hyper subjective is the reason behind holding on to a scenario that like you pretty easily mentioned is, is not, we are not going back to coal. I don't believe um in in any meaningful way a safe bet so so the the climate um or i guess kind of from a policy perspective it's like yeah but if we keep if we stay up here then we can kind of keep everyone in line but at some point in time don't you think it it becomes the uh i call it the the low bank account scenario where people don't check their bank accounts when they know that they don't have a lot in there you just get you just get tired of looking at it and you don't do anything about it anymore is i feel like that could be a real fear if we don't start injecting a little bit of yeah, yeah. climate hope into this thing like like you said cop 28 like has it been working and if it has we should celebrate that and keep doing the things that are working right yeah i mean and this is where it gets kind of nuanced and, and let me you know i'll I'll explain. You know, a colleague of mine, Justin Ritchie, who did you know heroic work over the years looking at these RCPs, in particular RCP 8.5. He and I wrote a paper, and we explained or tried to explain why people hold on so long to to a very extreme but out of date scenario. And there's a lot of reasons. Um, for some people, um, particularly in the environmental movement, the, the, their theory of change is something like let's scare the bejesus out of people and then they'll be motivated to act um, out of out of those fears and you know we've seen this over and over again and you know people argue about whether you know fear is a good motivation or not um, setting that aside if you're relying on outdated science to do that you're really setting yourself up for um, you know losing some some credibility um, we in the academic and scientific community have our own incentives. Um, can you imagine a PhD student who's been working for the last six years on a dissertation centered on RCP 8.5, and then they learn it's out of date? Are they going to say, okay, well, I'm going to start over, <laughs> um, you know, and multiply that. And you know, literally there's, um, you know, tens of thousands of RCP 8.5 papers published every year. Mm -hmm. um, it's a, it's an industry. And so altering course is a challenge. I mean, also for the media and for university press offices, um, if you can put out a press release that says, you know, by 2100, polar bears are going to disappear, you know, under this scenario, you're more likely to get on the front pages of newspapers than if you say, well, we project it out and it's, it's, it's complicated and nuanced. And so, so there's a lot of reasons and, and some of them are climate politics, some of them are academic politics, some of them are media politics. Um, but the, the, the reality is that it, it may take a while, but good science, you know, almost always wins out mm -hmm. over outdated or flawed science. And so people are going to see um, in coming years and really over the next decade, a complete resetting of how we think and talk about climate change. Not, not many people are aware of this right now. And it's, you know, this is not the debate between alarmists and deniers. This is just science catching up with what we know to be true and, and everybody knows this in the community there's there's nothing i'm saying that's not well known um it just it's just how the community is is dealing with it with the broader world is um it's, it's taking a little time yeah i mean i'm a an ordained baptist minister you mean i probably don't know that about me people who listen to this know it. um on tiktok i have the handle packaging pastor so that's fun um 
but I can tell you that the uh, the like 1970s sort of like 60s, 70s, 80s, like hellfire and brimstone, like scare people into heaven by talking about hell all the time. Those yeah. churches are pretty much gone. Like that is not a message that lands with oh, people over yeah. a long period of time. Like you, it's certainly a part of it. You know, it's not, but but there's there's also a hopeful message. It's called the good news, yeah. right? Gossip the evangelist is a good news bringer, and I. Um, I think you, if you don't have both of those, and especially in something that's rooted in intangible, like academic, scientific reasoning, like what you're talking about, um, I'm going to get in trouble. I'm not saying that religion is, doesn't have any science to it, but what I'm saying is in this conversation, you know, like you're an right. academic and, and, you know, you're talking about this from this perspective, it's actually not helpful, like you said, to have the hellfire and brimstone message that actually doesn't have a lot of truth behind it is going to, that may have had truth, but it's just, it feels like a, a lagging, a lagging output. Right. That... Yeah. You got to keep up. And, and, and I mean, there is a lot of good news. Um, and I know, I mean, I, I had an editor tell me um, when I was pitching a book proposal a couple of years ago, um, the world is not ready for good news on climate. Um, and there is a lot of good news, um, and the, a lot of the good news is in technology. Mm -hmm. um, the, the you know the cost of deploying and getting electricity from wind and solar has you know plummeted. Um, the twenty two countries just committed to tripling nuclear power, which is you know a big, huge, big bang for the buck for for carbon free electricity. That, that might that may um, not be the best way to phrase nuclear power is a bang for the buck, but you're right. Uh, <laughs> It, well, I mean, it, it, I mean, I, it, I we should it talk is, about that it is. because, you know, it, when uh, Chernobyl happened, that was a big bang. Yeah. Um, but since then, uh, reactor technology has modified so that Chernobyl can't happen Correct. again. And so now there is, you know, you know, small modular reactors, which, you know, they're going to take a couple of decades to get off the ground. Um, but I mean, this is this is also good news. The world is going to consume a massive amount more energy. And if you are among the poorest around the world and you don't have lights that come on reliably, don't have air conditioning, um, that's great news. But that all that that energy, all that electricity is going to have to come from somewhere. Um, and so the good news is that I think the climate space has finally got its head around the need for technological innovation and deployment around the world. Um, electric cars are a thing, but more important than electric cars are electric tuk-tuks in you know India mm -hmm. and Thailand. Um, the two and three wheelers uh, are, consume a lot more um, gasoline than do cars, even though you know the U.S. is full of cars. Um, there's a lot more people in bigger economies. Um, so if you project forward. Um, kind of where we're at now and if you there's a, a number of important organizations including the framework convention on climate change um, the kind of the worst case scenario going forward is this long plateau of emissions um, which is they stay flat now that's not nearly policy success but it's not the ever increasing emissions right. to you know 2200 like they used to predict um, and so temperature changes uh, by 2100 are projected to be point five plus or minus degrees, which again is going to create disruption and some problems, but it's also not going to be the extinction of the human race as some people would have it. So so I'm 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 actually you know more optimistic about climate policy than I've been in my career. Um, just because I think you know at this point we're now starting to focus on the right things um, when it comes to policy. And it's been a while um, to get here.
Okay, so uh, I did a that that's tremendously helpful. Um, I got to do a, a TEDx talk about, and it was called the good news of, of packaging. Um, and so I do spend a lot of time here trying to find people who are rationally able to discuss good news. Um, anyway, I talked about innovations, kind of like what you did, right? Like I talked about innovations and, and things that companies are doing when it comes to plastic re reduction and waste reduction and and things like that. So if we're looking at, at uh, you know, decarbonization, are there things that these large CPG companies who used to not, I found out they used to not be at these COP events. And now, you know, I'm running into people from, from 3M, from Amazon, from Microsoft, from Mars chocolate, not Mars, the planet, but the, the food company. Um, like they're all there now because they are trying to figure out like, well, how is policy going to impact not just academics, but how is policy going to impact our company? Because obviously, politics impact the ability to do business. So from a decarbonization perspective, as you're talking about reducing reliance on fossil fuels, do you have any thoughts or have done any studies on things that these companies can do um, from who are manufacturing stuff? Like talk about India. I mean, food production in India is incredibly important um, because of their, their growing population. Yeah, so I mean, so the first thing for everyone to recognize um, and I know, you know, industry has this, you know, particular jargon about emissions, scope one, scope two, scope three sort of things. But I mean, it's when you boil it down, it gets to be really simple. Most carbon dioxide emissions from human activities are from the combustion of fossil fuels. And so the single most important thing that any of us can do, including people in industry, is to advocate for policies. And again, it's policies that are going to make a difference that move the world from burning fossil fuels to getting alternative low or, or no carbon sources of, of energy. Um, it, it, if we take them one by one, so coal, it's, it's pretty straightforward to imagine how we would get the world off of coal. Um, I just published a piece of my Substack about replacing um, the, the big coal plants that emit a lot of carbon dioxide with nuclear. Um, that's just a choice. The technology is there. We could do that. Um, natural gas is more difficult um, because natural gas um, is a backstop for a lot of the renewables. But I think that, you know, the really hard one to, to deal with, and this is probably the one most relevant to your industry, is petroleum. Mm -hmm. um, we get a lot more from a barrel of oil than just gasoline and diesel. We, it's, you know, the feedstocks for the petrochemicals and all the plastics that we use. Um, so how to, um, to the degree possible, innovate in order to replace what a barrel of oil provides is one area. Um, but we use oil for an important reason. It's a really kind of a miracle kind of a liquid that provides all sorts of um, services and goods um, that we use in the modern economy. So one area where there's been a lot of attention is what's called carbon capture mm -hmm. um, and storage um, or you know, carbon dioxide reduction which is um, supposed to be uh, applied to what's called hard to abate sectors. And petrochemicals is one of those. Um, jet fuel is another um, where uh, we haven't figured it out yet. Like, you know, how are we gonna eliminate the carbon dioxide from those? So being aware of those, and you know, I, I have nothing specific to recommend to packaging companies. I assume they're being as efficient in their supply chains as they possibly can oh you would be you would be super surprised but <laughs> yeah yeah you would, oh, really? yeah, yeah yeah but i mean you would hope so right so right. um keep yeah you can keep going yeah yeah so so 
you know, focusing on these larger scale things, there's, it's not going to be Microsoft, it's not going to be Apple, it's, it's not going to be the packagers who, you know, make a big dent in our emissions. It's just not, that's just not how it works. Um, if, if we convert, um, you know, the, the top 5% of polluting of coal plants, we can reduce emissions um, around the world by something like 10 to 20, maybe mm. 25%, depending on your estimates. Um, there's some low hanging fruit out there. Um, going to the hardest parts of the problem first probably doesn't make much sense. Yeah. Um, they'll cost the most, they'll be the most frustrating. Um, and so, you know, my recommendation is to focus, focus, focus on the low hanging fruit. Where can we make the biggest dent um, in the shortest time frame possible. And right now that's coal, um, without a doubt. It's the most carbon intensive fuel and the easiest one. To I say easiest and, you know, obviously nothing's easy in this space, um, but compared to the challenges of natural gas or petroleum, um, coal is, is the low hanging fruit out there. So if you had, I mean, let's just say there was a scenario in which you are uh, whatever company a and you're in you're buying products and you have your supply chain right because you hear people say like vote with your dollars and so you got a comp you've got company supplier a who is you know primarily using the energy that comes from we'll just say it's primarily coming from coal plants and you have company b that's coming from non-coal plants i don't know what that would be solar wind right. and natural gas um and everything else is equal right price quality blah 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 you're like, you could vote with your dollars by going with this company over here and this company, you are, you are not creating any more demand on coal, Would that be a, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that's going to like solve the world's problems. I'm just trying to come no. up with something practical for these companies who are like, we don't Absolutely. really know what to do. We just know that we're told that we have to report our emissions and that we make it taxed on our emissions now and we need to lower our emissions and we don't really yep, know how yep. to do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, so, I mean, that model is something like, I mean, you probably remember, you know, when uh, when the tuna tuna fish uh, producers had dolphin safe tuna, yeah. right? You buy from suppliers who are somehow accredited, um, and I can see, you know, purchasing from you know low carbon suppliers and understanding supply chains, um, and that's you know that's built into some of the the, the corporate you know climate responsibility already today. Um, governments are talking about things like a carbon border tax mm -hmm. um, because you know obviously if it's cheaper to go to, you know, one supplier than another. Um, but, you know, that financial incentive probably overrides carbon incentives for a lot of folks. But if governments implement a carbon border adjustment for international trade, then that means at least everybody's playing by the same rules. Um, and, and you take away that incentive to, to go to the cheapest at, at all the time. And again, that's policy that harmonizes. Um, I don't think a carbon tax is, is in our near future. Um, it's hard to um, imagine complete decarbonization without it yeah. um, over many decades. But, you know, a carbon tax is something that builds those incentives in for companies, even if it's a low carbon tax that, you know, doesn't appreciably change, um, you know, the, the end price to the consumer. Um, if it's in your supply chain, it's going to factor into how people make decisions. Yeah, for sure. Okay, last question. And then, and then we're going to wrap up and I want people to know how to go follow you and all that good stuff. Um, by the way, if you're listening to this and you're not on Substack, you're crazy. Substack is like the greatest social media place where it's it's like the least amount of pretension, I feel like. I just enjoy the people there. Uh, so if you're not a jerk, then you should be on Substack. And I want to give everyone an opportunity to follow you there. And I think I know the answer to this last question. Um, but there's within the realm of sustainability, 
they're start, I'm starting to see a little bit of a tug of war between things like water conservation, uh, energy use, you know, carbon emissions versus, versus uh, material and water conservation and, you know, land use. And, and is it, it's, it's going in the landfill and landfills are doing blah, blah, blah. So at the end of the day, though, what it sounds to me like you're, you're like, no, it's still pretty simple, right? Like <laughs> we need to be focused on continuing to, you know, go after, you know, coal, bad, you know, bad coal production, whatever that means and reduce carbon emissions. Is that, I feel like I'm picking up on that, but I could be totally wrong. Yeah, no, no, I think that's exactly right. And, and, you know, those, those sort of trade-offs are really important and it, it does depend if you're in Quebec or, or Norway um, versus, you know, Dubai or Arizona, if you're talking about water yeah, trade-offs and so true. on. Uh, and so evaluating those local effects, I think are really, really important. Um, water often is a local, I mean, water is something that's used and individual companies have some control over the, the, the water they consume and um, the water they pollute and so on. It's really different with carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is the product of the global energy economy, mostly. Um, and you and I and Bill Gates and, and everyone else has very little control over carbon dioxide emissions. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, this is one of the frustrations that, you know, people talk about carbon footprints and so on, and people should live, you know, however they feel is appropriate, but recognize the way that we get over that hump and, and move the dial on uh, carbon emissions is large scale policy that coordinates, you know, public sector, private sector, um, so that we deploy low carbon or, or no carbon uh, energy technologies. Got it. Well, uh, that's awesome, Roger. If you please let everyone know, how can they? What's the best way to follow you and, and get your content? I I've certainly benefited from it tremendously already in my life. So how can other people benefit from it? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, just Google Pelkey, P-I-E-L-K-E, -E, in the word Substack, and you'll find the Honest Broker Substack and sign up. It's free, um, and I got a lot to say, obviously, and uh, and I invite everybody to participate. All views welcome. Awesome. Uh, well, thanks, Roger. I appreciate everyone listening. Uh, I'll make sure that the show, the links are down in the show notes. You can just uh, click the buttons and I'll make things so easy for you. Uh, you, you won't even, you won't even be able to believe it. So um, uh, 1986 Pooter Impala graduate, Roger Pelkey Jr. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Adam. It was fun. Hey, congrats. You made it to the end of the podcast. If you're looking for more great podcast material in the packaging industry, please check out Sustainable Packaging with Corey Connors and the newly redesigned Package Unboxed with Avelio Matos. Go find them wherever you listened to this podcast. Thanks, everybody.